0: While so many Vietnamese people were allowed to come here, again I ask the same thing that I asked with the Syrian boat people, that I asked when I have spent before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time down at the border, you know, in refugee camps. What is different? What is? Why was my mom's generation different than these folks? So it's it's all wrapped up. It's it's all wrapped up together, and I'm still asking these questions. Why am I here? How did, like, just the context and and political contingencies, historical contingencies of the time allow my mom to get here when ultimately it's just people who need a place to go? And why are are some people deemed bad refugees today or bad immigrants?
1: I'm Lindsay Goldford Gray. And I'm Jenny Guilfoyle. And
2: this is Inadmissible.
1: In this episode, we go back to
2: the event that finally spurred the U.S. to create our current refugee and asylum system, the Vietnam War. After the Vietnam War, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese fled to the United States, which at the time, the 1970s, still didn't have any safe way to bring refugees here or a system to help them once they got here. We're joined now by Julian Saporiti, a Vietnamese American songwriter and scholar who was born in Nashville, Tennessee. Saporiti holds degrees from Berkeley College of Music, University of Wyoming and Brown University. He's been commissioned by cultural institutions like Lincoln Center, the LA Philharmonic, the National Parks and Carnegie Hall. His multimedia work, No No Boy, has transformed his doctoral research on Asian American history into concerts, albums and films. I first encountered Julian by coming across his latest album which is called 1975 and which was released in 2021. It's gotten great reviews, and it is a gorgeous and enlightening listen. In the album, he uses stories of real people to open doorways to difficult histories, and we'll hear one of his songs later in this episode. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. Um, So I know that your mother and your mother's family are from Vietnam. Could you talk with us a little about your mother's path to the United States and what that was like?
0: Absolutely. Um, So for those who don't know, the Vietnam War, or the American War in Southeast Asia, as a lot of Vietnamese people call it, ended in 75 when the US pulled out and the communists uh, took Saigon or reunified the country, depending on your point of view. And my mom was born in 49. So she was actually born in French Indochine, which had just uh, been passed back to the French colonial rule from the Japanese. So really a a whole messy time to be born in South Vietnam in Saigon, currently known as Ho Chi Minh City. So she's born in the late 40s. Uh, Ho Chi Minh defeats, uh, or the Northern forces defeat the French in um, 54. And then she's under basically uh, South Vietnam, kind of a puppet state for the U.S. military occupation who are fighting the communists in this proxy war, in the Cold War. And so she's in this really unique and interesting family. Um, I mean, I don't think any family is typical, but hers is particularly uh, interesting as far as a product of colonialism. We're French citizens from before World War I. We served for the French army like many people in the colonies do. And so she has French citizenship. She's going to French Catholic school. The family speaking French and Vietnamese, and she's learning English. Meanwhile, late 60s are happening, and she's a teenager. Bombs are going off in cafes. Um, very dangerous, just, just stuff you can't imagine, but she's still just a teenage girl. She often tells me, I didn't think about the war of politics as much as I did my fashion or my nail polish, which was very humanizing, three-dimensionalizing for this, you know, as we're talking about today, quote-unquote refugees. And so in 68, uh, something called the Tet Offensive happens in which the North launched strategic attacks on the South, on specific uh, points um, and people. And my great-grandfather, uh, my uncle, was one of those people because he was a politician for the South Vietnamese government. My mom, the whole family, they were in Uncle's country house in Vinh Long in South Vietnam. Grenade comes through the window, probably thrown by some teenagers from the north, and they assassinate him. And so 1968 is when that happens. The family, you know, the patriarch is lost, um, kind of rudderless. Mom is lucky because she can get a student visa in part due to her French citizenship and our connections. And she ends up in rural Pennsylvania. So as I said, Saigon falls in 75, but she's out in 68. The rest of my family doesn't leave until 76, if not later. And they all go to France because of our citizenship. So she's actually the only one in the immediate family who becomes American eventually. And um, again, so it's, it's a really complicated story that you kind of have to unpack a lot of the 19th, and 20th century colonial rule in Southeast Asia to understand, you know, layers of American, French, Japanese rule um, to, to find this young woman, my mother in rural Pennsylvania.
2: So her experience then was maybe not similar to many Vietnamese who were uh, left later during the the mid to late seventies and other family members. Um, Could you talk about why people were leaving then, and you talked through so, so well why your mother left, but why did your other relatives leave? Why did other people leave?
0: Well, if you were on the wrong side of a war, um, whatever that means, uh, in this case, you, you, you weren't communist, uh, you faced some pretty severe penalties. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Whether that being put in re-education camps, which some of my friends' parents, uh, particularly the men, were in for up to a decade. Uh, Or you could be killed, um, you know, because you're on the losing side of a war under a really strict regime was taking over. So people were fearing for their lives, Um, you know, if they didn't want to renounce their ways or if they didn't even have a choice to renounce their ways and like buy into this new lifestyle, which not only was foreign to them, like a communist government, but also they were taught was evil because they were under, you know, American and French occupation for so long you know, it's hard to reckon with. So people chose to flee the only home they've ever known um, as opposed to be put in these re-education camps, face prosecution for, you know, their part in the war just by virtue of their geography where they lived in the South. So ultimately upwards of a million people leave um, in this group that's called the boat people, about 500,000 of those people it's estimated died in the South China Sea, didn't even make it. So just littered with bones of these Southeast Asian folks who just yeah I, it's, it's hard to really reckon with um, and that's why for me as a not only historian but also an artist I try to talk in small stories I try to tell personal stories when I'm writing music or t- teaching a class because a million people a million refugees You know, these dates, 1975, early 80s, they don't really mean anything until you know the the humanity behind it, right? And that's how you actually, I think, cultivate empathy and knowledge. And so my mom's story wasn't typical at all, but no one's story is really typical. Everyone has an individual story, you know, of the millions of people ultimately from Southeast Asia who were caught up um, in this late 20th century war, whether it's people who survived the war in Asia or uh, in Cambodia, had to um, survive the Khmer Rouge, which was a genocide that killed a quarter of the population in our neighboring country, or all these Vietnamese boat people. All of their pathways are different, and I think there's something to illuminating as many of those individual stories as possible, So, which is why I appreciate coming on and be able to talk to you about not only my family, but some of my friends and just people I've researched, you know, because the only way this really made sense to me was not through memorizing dates, um, but through hearing the trials and tribulations of individuals.
2: So you mentioned boat people and you have a very beautiful and haunting song that you wrote that we're actually going to listen to later in this episode. That's called boat people. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little about who that song is about, what that song is about and how you came to write it.
0: So I was in the middle of uh, a little bit more about me. I was a musician from my teens through my 20s. Uh, That was my job, indie rock band. It was very cool, but I got burnt out. So I kind of fell backwards into academia. And I've just come out of that. (laughs) Recently minted doctor now, whatever the... the, So I'm the smartest musician in the world, basically, which isn't saying much. Um, (laughs) All jokes aside, during my doctoral research, I was studying about immigration, about... um, Trans-Pacific Cultural Exchange about Asian American studies. And I was learning all these fascinating stories. Like I said, these small stories, which which helped to illuminate and and empathize a bigger history. And I remember I was presenting at a conference in 2016, right after the election in Washington, D.C. It was, um, I think, in like the Hilton or something. One of those academic conferences where we all Moan about the plight of marginalized people under chandeliers and big ballrooms, those kinds of things, Um, which is fine. I love those things. You get to hear really smart people talk. But I remember there was 20 people in the audience and I was thinking, wow, this is a pretty good crowd for an academic paper. But I used to play for hundreds of people, sometimes thousands if I was lucky, if it was a really good gig. And now I actually have something to say. So I went home over that winter break and I started turning all this research into songs taking these oral histories I'd collected or old archival research and boat people, the the song that I wrote, it kind of comes from two places. One is a narrative of a guy named Tuan Tran, a doctor who went back to Saigon after schooling overseas to help like during the war in Saigon. And then the communists took over and he became one of these boat people and his story that I took from an old uh, Canadian broadcast corporation radio interview in the late seventies, once he made it as a refugee to Canada, His story was cinematic. It was escaping Thai pirates in the South China Sea, leaving with his daughter and son, having to leave his wife behind, hiding out in Chinese safe houses, and then finally making it to Pulau Bidong, which was once the most crowded place in the world, which was a UN refugee camp off the coast of Malaysia. Then he waited for four months and finally got uh, refugee status to move to Montreal. And I just wanted to tell that story, but I wanted to sing it. I wanted to put the, I guess, emotion and the sort of like grandeur, the terror, the isolation, all these things that it's very hard to write in prose, but that music can help um, buoy, can help carry along. So that's like the first layer of that song. But then it was also I was writing it. Remember, this is post 2016. Trump takes office. Everyone's really ratcheted up. Something we just haven't recovered from emotionally, I think, in this country and they were talking about the muslim ban and so as the son of um you know someone who had to seek refuge in this country of of family members who who had to flee a, a country i didn't understand what was different i didn't understand why the vietnamese were good refugees that we could let in but folks from syria who were fleeing in the same kind of old rickety boats 200 people crowded into a ship made for 10. These pictures I was seeing on the news, which were almost direct echoes of this history I had studied and some of my friend's family had lived through. Why were these bad refugees? You know. So I wanted to investigate that as well and just think about these overlapping histories and how context, both politically, culturally, affects you know, ultimately what's the same the same person, which is just someone trying to flee a war, flee death, and make a life somewhere where that, you know, is supposed to be promised. So that's what Boat People is about. It's trying to it's trying to encapsulate a lot. And again, this is why I write songs instead of write books because you can do so much in four minutes, you know.
2: Thank you, and we're gonna listen to Boat People later in the episode, and everyone's gonna be able to hear that. Um, I understand that you had a strong emotional reaction to the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan, last August, and that you even wrote a song and an article that was published in the Daily Beast about that. Do you see parallels between the experiences of people like your family who fled Vietnam and the experiences of people today, for instance, people from Afghanistan who are fleeing persecution and seeking safety in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, again, it's like the Syrian boat people or the Rohingya people fleeing Myanmar, or Burma, whatever you call it. And I think Kabul in Afghanistan was particularly devastating because you're watching Americans withdraw in a very similar fashion to 1975 and the famous shots of the helicopter and just leaving a line of would-be refugees, people who were on our side, supposedly you know, translators, government officials, people who fought for us and leaving them behind. that was really devastating. Um, Devastating for my friends who fought in that war on the American side. Um, The same way I think that a lot of Vietnamese or Vietnam War veterans uh, and Vietnamese American uh, who fought for South Vietnam, like felt very lost and betrayed for the rest of their lives in, in many cases. And so, yeah, again, it's these, if you know your history, um, and this just doesn't start with Vietnam as far as American immigration policy towards people on the Asian continent, like a lot of scholars say, we, we, were, we Asians were the first illegal immigrants, first people deemed illegal, whether it's the 1885 Chinese exclusion or 1924 um, Immigration Act that sets up these really harsh quota systems, which I know you've covered a little bit. So yeah, these, these echoes become almost insulting. If you go back into the history, it's like this is happening again. Um, but while so many Vietnamese people were allowed to come here because of uh, establishing a refugee act, again I ask the same thing that I ask with the Syrian boat people, that I ask when I have spent before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time down at the border, you know, in refugee camps. What is different? What is di- why was my mom's generation different than these folks? And the plain answer, if you meet people to people, again, these individual stories, they're not. It's people fleeing a regime that might not treat them fairly, uh, might not even give them any kind of agency, revoke their educational rights, um, and sometimes face death. Uh, Or uh, in the case of a lot of my friends from Central America, Mexico, being extorted mercilessly by gang violence in a system that there is no quarter from. And yet I see... People not being allowed, you know, those 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 visuals of people climbing onto airplane wheels at the airport in Kabul. That's how bad they need to leave, you know, or my friends who would tell me they've been in camps down in Matamoros or Tijuana for months or years and telling me what they've escaped. And at least when I was down there a couple of years ago before the pandemic, not even being allowed across the bridge in Laredo. Or into Brownsville or into San Diego, not even being allowed to step on our soil, which is what you're supposed to be allowed to do to say, I'm seeking asylum, which adds a whole another layer of bureaucracy and you know, how painful that waiting, that listlessness can be. And yeah, so it's, it's all wrapped up. It's, it's all wrapped up together. And I'm still asking these questions. Why am I here? How, how did like just the context and, and, and political contingencies, historical contingencies of the time allow my mom to get here when ultimately it's just people who need a place to go? And why are, why are some people deemed bad refugees today or bad immigrants?
2: Well, thank you so much, Julian. Remember everyone, Julian records as No-No Boy, and I encourage everyone listening to find his music and listen to it because it's really wonderful. Thank you so much. So there is a lot to unpack here. Um, When he says good refugee and bad refugee, Lindsay, what do you think Julian meant by that?
1: You know, I think he means that throughout history, there've been different groups of people who've been forced to flee their homes, but our country has viewed these different groups quite differently. And in certain instances, like here in our discussion of the Vietnam War, Our country largely opened its arms to the Vietnamese Vietnamese people who were looking for safety in the United States. But when we look at people, for example, at the Southern border, we see policies that block thousands from seeking safety within our borders and lots of rhetoric about how dangerous it would be to the United States if we allowed them in. As Julian mentioned, when you talk to individual people, to human beings, every story is unique, but they all have common elements. And in the end, everyone is a human being that just wants to be safe and have a place to call home.
2: So why is it different for these two different groups? Why did we open our arms to the Vietnamese, but then we're turning away people at the southern border? And then to go back to the 19th century, um, and, you know, Julian mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act. Why did we cast that?
1: You know, I think the vast majority of it depends on the political winds of the time, quite honestly, not just the current presidential administration, which, of course, has a lot of influence, but also generally what the vibe of the United States is, for lack of a better word, as it relates to welcoming immigrants. And this isn't a Republican versus Democrat issue. We look back and we see that Ronald Reagan was the president who signed into law what's commonly referred to as the amnesty law. He also said, I believe in the idea of amnesty for those who have put down roots and who have lived here enough, or excuse me, lived here even though sometimes, sometime back they may have entered illegally. President George W. Bush ran on a pro-immigration platform wanting to pass comprehensive immigration reform and said in 2001, we understand that the border we share is a vibrant region that unites us. But then days after he said that September 11th happened and everything changed. Most of the time our country's desire to turn people away feeds from fear, quite honestly. And that's especially true after 9-11. However, statistics show that immigrants actually commit less crime than their US counterparts by as much as two times. They're twice, US citizens are twice as likely to be arrested for that type of, for, a, um, for like a serious felony offense than their undocumented counterparts, for example. Studies also show that um, while there's an initial investment into assisting refugees with basic needs, refugees then go on to contribute a far greater economic benefit to our economy than they received. And of course, as Julian mentioned, so much of our country's history is rooted in deep systemic racism that we continue to see today, especially in our immigration system.
2: And in 1980, the US passed the Refugee Act, which finally incorporated the refugee definition from the 1951 Refugee Convention that we talked about in our previous episode, which was created in response to the Holocaust. We finally incorporated that into our laws. And when you look at it, that definition from the Refugee Convention appears on its face to be race neutral, but, Julia mentioned how our race neutral policies can be carried out in ways that are not race neutral and you just alluded to that. Can you touch on that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so we have the law, which of course is codified and fixed and firm, but then policies can change again, based on the administration, the sort of general culture that we have in our society that you know, policies that the government enacts and carries out. Policies can also change based on litigation, as we've seen, there's lots of lawsuits flying around about immigration issues. Another really big thing to note that I think we're gonna touch on in a future episode is that the court system in immigration court is quite different than almost all other courts. The Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the sort of uh, court body that has a, a network of judges, that sets a lot of the law for immigration court is actually part of the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice, the head of the Department of Justice is the Attorney General, which of course, the Attorney General is appointed by the President. And so the Attorney General changes as the administrations change. One of the wild things about the Board of Immigration Appeals that we refer to as the BIA is that they can issue decisions which act as law for all of the immigration courts. But then if the Attorney General doesn't like one of those decisions, the Attorney General can basically send the case to to him or herself to to enact, basically to overturn that decision and issue another decision, which is then law for everyone, um, all of the immigration courts. And so we can see, especially with the last administration, Uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions referred several major cases to himself, one of which is called Matter of AB that um, basically precluded domestic violence victims from being able to seek asylum in the United States. And there was other language in there about gang violence. Well, the vast majority of asylum cases that relate to domestic violence and gang violence are from Central America. And so what we see is, while the law on its face is race neutral, policies and case law that can have such an influence on people's lives and and the implementation of that law end up being disparately, end up disparately impacting people of certain nationalities and certain ethnicities and races.
2: So, kind of uh, delving a little bit more into that idea of a disparate impact on individual people, maybe who are from different countries. I wanna go back to um, some of the stories that Julian was talking about and ask you to elaborate on those a little bit more and thinking about the differences in the immigration experiences of Julian's mother and Dr. Tran, who's featured in his song Boat People, which we're gonna have a chance to listen to at the end of the episode.
1: Yeah. I mean people can be from the same country which is an example here so we talked about you know people from different countries and how their experiences might be very different but even if folks are from the same country their experiences can be extremely different and so you know we take a look at julian's mom who was from vietnam but was a french citizen and so she held a french passport and she was able to leave as soon as things got a little bit unstable and she was able to go to France and then immigrate from France to the United States. She first came on a temporary visa, a student visa, and then ultimately became a citizen. Um, but you know, when you have networks and resources and, and hold a passport from a country that the United States is you know, generally more friendly to or in the case back then, has a quota that is probably significantly larger than those um, for Vietnam, you know, her experience looks really different. As I think Julian mentioned in the podcast, his mom was more concerned with nail polish than with refugee issues, because she really was able, she had a lot more freedom of movement, you know, based on her circumstances. And Dr. Tran, you know, we assume that Dr. Tran was a person of some resources, because he was a doctor, and he was able to sort of navigate and create all of this back channeling you know the 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 journey that he had to take required obviously a significant logistics and even then Dr. Tran wasn't able to leave until it was an absolute emergency and he had to leave his family behind. Now we take those two experiences and we juxtapose those with someone who had no resources and those are the stories that you often don't even hear. Um, because those are the folks that are that are still left behind. And honestly, it makes me think about thousands of people in Afghanistan who, you know, much of the American public thinks that Afghanistan is over, right? That the U.S. did all these great things, but there are thousands and thousands of people who are left behind and hiding. Um, and their experience is so different, and we often don't even hear those voices.
2: So, Lindsay, can you just talk a little bit more about the parallel to what's going on currently in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're gonna talk about what's going on in Afghanistan in a future episode, as you know, but I I think it bears mentioning here that the parallel between Vietnam and Afghanistan is almost eerie. You know, the, the, the US goes in under occupation or war, we leave, everything collapses. People flee or they hide in fear of their lives. But our response has been really different between these two groups. You know, for Vietnam, we used mass parole and parole is a, you know, a legal jargony term of art. But basically what it means is we granted temporary entry to people after the Vietnam War and mass, like, I mean, you know, in a much in large, large numbers we welcomed them, but our response has been really different with Afghanistan. Now, right after the fall of Kabul, we paroled in many, many thousands of people, and then you know, additional people who have close ties to the United States will be paroled in. But the the parole system, you know, that we have has not been widely utilized for Afghans to gain entry into the United States after the fall of Kabul. Now, thousands of immigration practitioners and volunteers have have requested parole on behalf of Afghans who are fearing for their lives, but the United States government has not been liberally granting those, right? Um, Generously granting those. And so we see sort of different responses to two eerily similar circumstances. So, but we will talk about that Uh, In greater detail for another day.
3: Forty years ago, the doctor left on the boat. inside This ain't new, no man. 14 hours by car, cargo trucks and. to his son held tight to his daughter
1: So for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit Vecina.org. That's V E C I N A.org. See you next time.